Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. We had been praying for this day for so long, yeah, so long, it's a long time coming. It's V-Day. It is, V-Day for sure. I was the first person at UVA to actually be vaccinated on December 15th. And so I started to actually video diary, video blog um, my experience. Dr. Ebony Hilton was the first person to get vaccinated at her job. She's a physician at the University of Virginia. I think what needs to happen is when we transition into phase 1B and phase 1C and phase 2, that the spotlight needs to go away from the physicians and the nurses and, and the people that can get access now into those other persons. We need to highlight someone who's working in a grocery store. We need to highlight someone working in one of these farming communities. Highlight those people because they are the trusted community persons where they live. The hospital took a video to show her vaccination in real time, in part to show people who have reservations about getting it themselves that, hey, it's safe. Congratulations. All right. I'm Eugene Daniels, and this is NerdCast. The difficulty with vaccines, vaccine hesitancy, especially now, is that it is in large part a sales job. I'm here with Dr. Hilton and political healthcare reporter Adam Kinkren. Good to go. About the fascinating place we're in with vaccines in America. On the one hand, we've got many people clamoring to get vaccinated, like me. But on the other hand, we not only have a fair access problem, we also have the problem of convincing some people that it's safe. Right. You have to convince people that this is worth you know, going out of their way to go and get. And it's a medical decision, which, which makes things even more fraught. You know, people a lot of times feel like, look, they want to be able to make that decision for themselves. They don't want to have people saying, you have to get this, right? So it's tricky. You have to convince people. And at the same time, you can't force them. You can't mandate them. And this leads to a lot of social media videos. For example, Vice President Kamala Harris got vaccinated on camera. Dr. Anthony Fauci has two. The president... I'm ready. And on and on. Dolly Parton. Well, hey. Dolly Parton, yeah. It's me. I'm finally going to get my vaccine. I'm so excited. Vaccine, vaccine. Vaccine, vaccine, vaccine. I'm begging of you, please don't hesitate. Talk about messaging. That is, I mean, that's that's exactly what you're looking for. once you're dead, then that's a bit too late. (laughs) I know I'm trying to be funny now, but I'm dead serious. Right, straight talk. Yeah. You know, somebody who people know and, you know, and trust, again, willing to get it on camera, right? She was ready. She got that shot right on camera. She had you know, a sweater. Did the whole her thing. sweater had literal, like, literally had a cutout <laughs> for the vaccine, like, right? Over she was ready. Was beautiful. I'm going to get one of those. We're going to see those shirts online and be like, retailing for like $100. <laughs> if you find it, send it to me. <laughs> I am going to get it. Um, anyway, back to Nerdcast. 
So the coronavirus vaccine is not just a public health issue, but a matter of political messaging. And it's a part of our cultural conversation. So the continued message we're all being bombarded with via video is like, hey, get this, watch me get it. Don't be afraid to get this vaccine. And when so many people are trying to get the vaccine, people who are hesitant seem like the least of our problems. But here we are looking at potentially the end of this pandemic. Not so fast. To really end it, officials need to convince these communities that it's safe. How? Well, for one, that message has to be different for different communities. In my reporting, I've been told by many people that blaming the communities that are hesitant is totally wrong. That the blame should instead be on the government, public health officials, etc. And leads people to say, how can I trust you, government, when you say you're going to protect me when you've done these heinous, heinous things to me? Because, for example, black and brown communities have reasons to be hesitant. And that reasoning makes sense historically. Exactly. We have three vaccines that have been approved in the United States and are in various stages of being rolled out. But if people don't get them, it doesn't matter. Vaccines don't actually matter. Vaccinations do, right? So we can have all the vaccines in the world. If people aren't willing to take them, if they don't feel comfortable taking them, then it's not going to do us any good or help us get out of the situation that we're in right now. Dr. Ebony Hilton is trying hard to solve the hesitancy problem, one patient at a time. And she's also using social media to reach a broader audience. On Twitter, I invite people who are anti-vaxxers, please, let's have a conversation. I welcome that discussion because in the end, I think it's the lack of that type of discourse that's allowed it to be two separate worlds that exist of people who will never get this vaccine and people who are running towards it. And when I say trying hard, I mean marathon, triathlon, Iron Man hard. She joined me in a small window she had after getting off her night shift in the ICU and right before teaching a class, so no sleep. But it's one of those things you either sink or swim. When you're thrown into a stressful situation, you can either figure out a way to tread that water or you can actually swim towards the shore and save your life, right? Because on one of those things, you're going to end up getting tired. So I'd rather get tired on my way to the shoreline than sit there and tread the water and be in the, in the middle of the ocean. And so, yeah, there are days I get tired. But my ultimate goal is not necessarily even to save my own life. As odd as that might sound, you can't afford to get tired when you have the future looking back at you to say, what did you do? And Adam Kinkren says the policy and politics around messaging and the question of why and who gets access when is a hotly debated topic among healthcare officials. So it's been this constant balance between who needs it most, who is most at risk, most vulnerable, and how fast can we just get shots into arms. One tactic Dr. Hilton employs when talking to her patients about getting vaccinated is talking numbers. <laughs> I mean, but honestly, the reason why I concentrate so much on numbers... Facts and figures. ...is because people can't argue with those, right? Hmm. They can try to argue with your emotions and they can argue with what you interpret to be your life experience. You know, Black people, we've been saying that we're dying at higher rates and no changes have been made for generations. So you explain to me then why these numbers, you know, why why are our children more likely to be hospitalized, five times more likely to be hospitalized? Why are they more likely to die? So yeah, so if you, if you start spitting numbers, people start listening. <laughs> 
They start listening a little bit differently. Right, right. As you look across the various groups where we see hesitancy, they're very different, right? So I think one of the communities that's gotten the most attention, right, just because of the history there is the black community. There's a significant amount of, of vaccine hesitancy because, you know, the black community's experience with doctors uh, with the federal government when it comes to medical and health issues, it's really not great. Continues to not be great, but historically is not great at all. Yeah. And so there is that kind of historical aspect that you know, that community particularly takes from it. A second community that we're really seeing a lot of hesitancy and a lot of indications of reluctance to take this COVID vaccine is among conservative whites, which is, again, very different community. And this is kind of more rooted in ideas of personal freedom and nobody tells me what to do and I will want to make this decision myself. And that is something you have to approach very differently than, you know, kind of trying to address the the historical atrocities in the black community. And I think that maybe the last thing I'll, I'll say on this front is that for a lot of people, it's a matter of making the decision easy, right? If you have to jump through a lot of hoops you know, navigate these really difficult sign-up systems, go wait in line for three hours in the middle of a workday. There's a significant percentage of people who may even want to get it, may be enthusiastic, but aren't going to because they simply can't. Mm -hmm. But if you start, if you make that process easier, if you can bring the vaccines to people, you can streamline that. That gets in the way of a lot of, you know, a, a significant percentage that would say, oh, well, I'm interested in getting it. I'm interested in being vaccinated. But I also have a lot of other things to do, and maybe this isn't the top priority. You know, I have extended, I'm Black for people who can't see me, but are hearing this. Um, And so I have members of my own family who have vaccine hesitancy. And my extended family, my mom actually just got this week her uh, first dose of a vaccine, which is very exciting. My dad has both of his. So, you know, we're moving and grooving on the Daniel side of things. But... Like you said, and I talked to um, Dr. Ebony Hilton, and we talked a lot about vaccine hesitancy, especially in the Black community. Mm-hmm. Beginning back in early December and really end of November, there was this narrative being pushed out that Black people were hesitant about taking the vaccine. And I knew right then we we're going to have a scapegoat. Do, do you feel like there are misconceptions about vaccine hesitancy among the Black community that are really frustrating to you? Yes, especially because we never mentioned hesitancy for white community. Hmm. Because when we talk about it, it's primarily a black and brown issue, right? She used Mm. the word scapegoat. Again, it's a scapegoat. That we scapegoat um, black and brown people. I actually have to think about four large buckets. One, African-Americans. And yes, we can talk about the many medical injustices that were performed on black Americans. But also you have to think about Hispanics. Right. We know there's a large population of undocumented immigrants that were very fearful that if I go in to get vaccinated... I may walk out and get deported, right? But the third and fourth buckets, a very large buckets of vaccine hesitancy, belong to the white community. So, Adam, I'm I'm curious about that white hesitancy, right? Like people who are saying, "I don't want to do this because I've had I have individual liberty." Why don't you think we talk about that at all when we talk about vaccine hesitancy? Well, I think it's a really good point. And, and I think a lot of times, you know, it, it goes back to the kind of historical aspect, right? It's, it's, it's easier, maybe, and more convenient to say, okay, why are people, you know, vaccine hesitant? And then immediately point to, well, look, there's this one demographic, one community that has 
been mistreated in the past in these situations. And so, of course, that is going to be the big insistent pocket of hesitancy that we have to deal with now. But you're right. And, and I think, you know, maybe secondly, the kind of vaccine hesitancy on the, you know, white, more conservative side is one, more recent, and, and two, just a little bit more complicated, right? Uh, usually when we're thinking about, you know, white people, white communities being vaccine hesitant, it has to do with, you know, anti-vaxxers, people who are vehemently against just the idea of vaccines as a whole. And again, that's probably a simplification. There is certainly a group of people who are vehemently anti-vax, but there are also, you know, a large percentage who, who are kind of on the spectrum of that, who say, you know, who maybe just don't quite trust the government, who maybe, again, want to be able to feel like they're making their decisions with their bodies, or who just are going to be just generally cynical about the whole process. And so it is certainly an oversimplification to look at any of these groups and say, well, here's the one explanation and here's the one answer for it. There are all kinds of nuances. And that, you know, honestly is what makes this whole process really hard, right? You and I are super excited to get this vaccine. (laughs) And everybody, you know, that is going to get vaccinated over the next month or so is going to be that pent up demand, right? We've had these shortages. Mm -hmm. That's going to be the first wave. At some point, we're going to get to a point where there's a ton of supply and probably in the next couple months, a ton of vaccine supply and not that pent up demand. And that's the real challenge. We're going to have to go out and find these hesitant people and convince them to take the shots. That was really depressing. So I will not be getting a hot girl summer, it sounds like, because at some point we're going to hit that issue. Dr. Hilton, a lot of this feels like it's about convincing people, Mm -hmm. right? Like whether you're counteracting something, but a lot of this feels like convincing people to get this vaccine is going to be maybe the most important or at least right under access, like very close to access. Mm -hmm. Do you have like any specific examples um, from your own life or workplace where, you know, someone comes in, a patient comes in, they have a question, maybe it's about COVID-19, and you're just like, you lay out all those facts right on the table, and they're like, you know what, I have changed my mind. Do you have any specific examples you can think of? Oh, yeah. Um, literally, we've held several in-hospital town hall meetings, initially with the environmental service group. So those persons that are literally tasked with keeping our hospital clean, our custodial staff, right? They are just as important. I tell people there's no hierarchy in medicine. The cleaning staff is just as important as me being a physician because if they don't keep the areas clean, infection runs rampant. But because of that, um, they are in direct contact with dirty linen when they're going into patients' rooms to help clean up that area and COVID lives on anything it touches. And so um, initially we had a high percentage of people in that group that said, no, I do not want to have a vaccine. And they are largely black and brown people that uh, make up those groups of persons that clean up the um, hospital. And after talking to to them, it was like a switch went off. Hmm. <laughs> the sign up was just through the roof, but it was because no one even took the time before that to even talk to them. Just to listen. We had a back and forth conversation. It wasn't like me, like, da 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 It was Tell me what you're concerned about. Now let's talk through it because I'm a, I, I'm just going to tell you the facts of this is what we're up against. If you get in contact with this virus and you're you're at the front line in a war zone walking into this ICU, just people want to be heard. They're not they're not hesitant that as a hard stop. They just are curious about 
what is it that this thing does and how will it impact my life? It sounds like what people want is information. Mm -hmm. That seems simple. I, you know, I'm my part of my part of my job is to gather information right. and share it with people. It's not brain surgery, <laughs> right? Like, no, it's important. Do, do I mean do doctors think that people won't understand or like what's the holdup? Why is the why does it feel like the information isn't there when it feels like a simple fix? Right, and you know, and it's it is unfortunate because I think a lot of us physicians we are out there trying to scream. Sometimes people don't want to hear us. <laughs> you know, it takes two to tango. There's a lot of misinformation and people have politicized and have made a lot of money on having these anti-vaxxer campaigns. But it really is one of those things of of starting to form these relationships, though, where we're not talking at people, we're talking with people. So, Adam, I talked with Dr. Hilton about her work convincing people who are vaccine hesitant. And as we talked about, there are different motivations for vaccine hesitancy among different groups of people. And this is something that you've reported on extensively. Mm -hmm. This idea of how do you make sure that these vaccines get in the hands of different communities, hard to reach communities. Mm -hmm. These are possibly rural communities or communities without pharmacies or without hospitals. And it feels like the government has its work cut out for them. There's an access issue that sounds like it's going to be fixed with ramped up supply and the Biden administration's new timeline. But then you still have vaccine hesitancy. Yeah, so, so I mean, maybe I'll take the, the access part first. You know, we've seen over the past couple months this big emphasis on finding a number of different distribution channels, places to funnel the vaccine through, right? So originally when we had only a small amount of vaccine, the approach was let's give it to the individual states, parcel it out across the 50 states and all the territories. And there are you know, providers who have the greatest access to the healthcare workers and the older you know, adults uh, who are going to be prioritized here. And in the last several weeks, kind of in, in preparation for this ramp up of, of greater supply, there has been an effort on the administration side to do a couple things. One, set up mass vaccination sites. So stadiums, convention centers, places that are central locations and strategically placed so that people who may have a tough time getting to a hospital, you know, can go to these mass vaccination sites and, you know, run, it's run by the military and they, they're just, their job is just to churn through people, right? Get as many people in the door and vaccinated a day as possible. Um, another channel is through pharmacies, right? So again, Maybe you don't live in an area with a mass vaccination site. Maybe you have trouble getting to a, a hospital. But there's a lot of areas with pharmacies, the CVS or a Walgreens or, or something like that, big box stores, so retailers, yeah, Walmarts. Yeah. The goal there is to just create as many touch points as possible so that no matter where you live, uh, there will be some, somewhere close by that you can go and get vaccinated. Yeah. And then I think the last component and the one that we really don't know much about but that is going to be crucial in reaching these hardest to reach communities are what Joe Biden has talked about as, as mobile vaccination sites, really clinics that take the vaccine to you, right? Um, and that's going to be really important in kind of finding those last hardest to reach communities that need to be vaccinated in order for us to feel comfortable like that that the virus overall is, is, is under control nationwide. Yeah. When I was talking to Dr. Hilton, um, something she brought up and 
in her mind and in the minds of others, how the CDC determined the tiers implicitly favored white people, right? Even though we know black and brown communities were hit the hardest by mm-hmm. COVID-19 and we know they aren't getting the vaccines um, and weren't getting the vaccines at the rates as they, you know, that was equitable to the, the, the impact that they were having. They're not written into the policies. The CDC has put out, they are called race neutral, but they really are pro-white if you look at it with the lens of just numbers and data. For instance, healthcare workers, again, phase 1A is healthcare workers and nursing home residents. But healthcare workers are 60% white. Nursing home residents, it costs money to put your family there. 78% of all nursing home residents are white. If you go to phase 1B, initially they were saying 75 and older. But what we know is that life expectancy for, for black people before COVID was only 75. Um, it's now dropped down to 65 and older. But if you look at the U.S. population over the age of 65, 77% are white. Even if you go to essential workers, when we're talking about essential workers, we're talking about grocery store workers, teachers, firemen, police officers, right? The collection, the collective mass of those persons are usually white. And if and even there's studies looking at by April 2020, less than 50% of all black adults actually had a job. And then the other phase 1B is actually kind of phase 1C-ish is pre-existing conditions. Now that's where black people, we get our foot in the door. Um, and it's unfortunate because... What it basically means with with the phase 1A and phase 1B is largely based on age, of which we know there's a paucity of life for Black people. We die at younger ages. Um, And employment, of which we know that unemployment is higher in African-American communities. So essentially, what these guidelines are saying is that um, Black people had to basically enter into 2020 with at least one organ dead and, and not working. Either you had to have heart failure kidney failure, you had to have cancer, you had to have diabetes, hypertension, some end organ dysfunction, aka pre-existing condition, before you would qualify. Whereas white people could literally just gracefully age and be 68 years old and get a vaccine. That's the difference. Adam, how did the CDC determine the tiers? And you know, in your reporting, did you find, was there anyone that was like, hey, guys, this is, you know, this is a lot of white people <laughs> that, that, are, that are getting this vaccine? Well, it was, it was controversial and it's really difficult. Look, you know, whenever you have to make these prioritization decisions, somebody's going to be unhappy, right? You're going to be leaving out right. some group. And the way that the federal government did it is they essentially let this CDC group, the CDC advisory panel, deliberate and debate over this for you know, too many hours, <laughs> a, a, a lot of time that, that us on the health team spent kind of tracking this. But, you know, the idea was to put together these recommendations that the federal government could put out and say, look, this is our best estimation for how things should go, prioritizing both need and speed, right? You don't want to make things unnecessarily complicated. And then that was kind of given out to the states. And, and, you know, the difficult thing with the way that our health system works is that a lot of times the federal government can only do so much. They can, they can put out recommendations. And then it's up to the states individually to look at those and say, does that make sense for us? So you saw a lot of variability and, and confusion early on in just who qualified. And to Ebony's point, yes, like if you are going to prioritize you know, the oldest Americans, right? You just look at life expectancy. Black and brown people don't, on average, live as long as white people. And so you're going Mm -hmm. to get 
this disparity in who initially gets the shots. And so there's been, there, there's certainly that criticism. On the other side, there was criticism that said, we've made these too complicated. We're trying to prioritize certain groups. If you just make it by age, you know, 75 and older, 65 and older, 55 and older, that's easy to follow. It'll speed things up. So it's been this constant balance between who needs it most, who is most at risk, most vulnerable, and how fast can we just get shots into arms. And, Mm -hmm. you know, one of the things that the White House has really made a priority is this idea of equity. I mean, if you look at the early vaccination statistics, overwhelmingly favored white people. I think there was only a small percentage, maybe 10% less of the proportion of vaccines going to black and brown people. And one of the hopes in setting up mass vaccination sites in doing these other distribution channels is that that will kind of even things out. We cover politics and a lot of politics is PR, right? Like it's a mm. lot of it's like convincing people of things and convincing them to do things. That's a huge part of getting vaccines into arms, as, as everyone's saying. Whose job do you think it is to message to people who are vaccine hesitant? It's the federal government. It's, it's the White House's to set the tone, to be those leaders, right? They're not going to be able to go door to door. They're not going to be the people who appeal to everybody, right? But we have seen what the impact is when you set the tone at the top, right? If you think back to the Trump era, think back last fall, before there were any vaccines that had been authorized, there was a lot of concern because it was very clear that the president at the time, Trump saw this as not just a scientific endeavor, but a political one as well. You know, he was pushing for the authorization of these vaccines before the election. He thought it would help him win re-election. And people understood that. People saw that and understood that there was a political aspect here. And that created a lot of concern because now you are a question where we're already developing these vaccines at record speed. Mm -hmm. Now you have to start to question, well, you know, are they cutting any corners in order to reach these political goals? Is this going to be safe? What we've seen since Biden has taken over is one, an emphasis on on safety, on saying, look, when these are ready, you should feel safe, you know, taking them, having your family take them. Um, you reported on Kamala Harris, you know, playing a role here on prominent officials going on TV, getting their shots in public. That's a big part of the persuasion, right? And then secondly, is the idea that you say, we've done our research, this is how we feel like state officials, public health experts, community leaders can now go out into their respective areas and convince people, right? And so a lot of the groundwork is being laid now uh, within the administration to figure out, okay, who resonates the most in these various communities that we have to reach? Is it doctors and nurses? Uh, Is it churches, um, religious leaders? Is it sports stars, athletes? Is it barbers? And something that I keep hearing from people is like, is it the, is it the guy who cuts your hair or the woman who lays it down? You know, like there are all these people within communities that are leaders, right? So there has been some quiet outreach on that. And that is, you know, when I talk to administration officials, that is a key component of the plan. The difficulty and and one of the things that has been, uh, I think, the most difficult to balance or the biggest challenge is when we still have this limited supply, you don't want to get people excited too early, right? So you have to kind of deploy these things (laughs) at just the right time where people say, okay, now I want to go get my shots. And when they actually walk in the door, 
they actually can get the shots, right? The worst thing that's possible is you spend all this time convincing somebody, they go to get one, they get turned away at the door and they say, you know what? That's it. I gave it my shot. I'm not going to do it anymore. So I think we will see in the next month or so a more visible concerted push to, you know, engage a lot of these people at the, at the state and local levels. Um, and when I talk to you know, local health officials and state health officials, they're already doing a lot of that. Why should people trust the vaccine, right? Like, I know lots of people, m- members of my own family, who say they'll wait and see what it does to people long-term. We don't know enough. But at a time where we know that we have to get to herd immunity, that we have to get to enough people having it to where we can kind of tamp COVID-19, open up completely. Is it is it selfish to be waiting this long, like instead of doing it for the good of everyone else? Or, or are there real logical reasons reasons for this waiting? I, I don't think it's selfish. I mean, I think it is it is natural to be a little bit, you know, concerned. Anything that goes in your body, especially vaccines, you want to know what, what you're doing. Um, the thing that makes it a no-brainer for me here and uh, that I feel like has been echoed by pretty much any health expert you're going to find across the entire spectrum of the country is that there is no debate about, one, how effective this is, and two, you know, to the best degree that we have over the past year about how safe this is. The other reason that I think people should really feel assured about this is that despite the fact that this has been record time, right, um, in developing a vaccine, there have been absolutely no corners cut around safety and and effectiveness, right? We have mm-hmm. gone through all the steps. It's just a matter of we started to do a bunch of these steps at the same time in a way that that we haven't ever in history before, and and that was largely because the incentives weren't weren't there at the time, you know, on the business side. So the government and, and the Trump administration, to their credit eliminated a lot of those incentives and said to the companies, we want you to go out and develop, you know, the best possible vaccine, do it, you know, as safely and also as fast as you, as you can, and we'll worry about the rest. And so what we've ended up with is three vaccines that are, um, that have exceeded expectations in terms of, of safety and, and efficacy, and ones that have been run through tri- extensive trials and been reviewed by Honestly, some of the best scientists that you're going to find, not just government, but also in the private sector. <laughs> yeah. um, and so, look, nothing is ever 100% safe. But if you give me, at least, the decision between you know, the very tangible threat of COVID, right? Over a half a million deaths in less than a year because of this disease versus you know, a vaccine where now, you know, six months on, we're seeing great effectiveness and, and no safety issues, really. I'm going with I'm going with the vaccine every time. Every time, me too. Every time, twice on Sundays. But it is it's scary. I mean, it is one of those things where, you know, uh, my my uncle, you know, contracted it, and he lives close to my grandmother who is in her in her 80s, and they you know see each other every day. And so, you know, there's not just the the immediate fear of okay, what's going to happen to this person, but then it's always. You know what's going to happen to the people around them, and we've just seen. You know this virus is so transmissible; um, it spreads so quickly that really anything we can do to to stomp it out as fast as possible is is the goal. 
Dr. Hilton, what keeps you up at night? <laughs> um, my family. No, uh, literally think about just trying to keep my family safe. Again, because I have certain protections um, in that I do have my N95 mask. I I was the first person to be vaccinated at my hospital. One sister has already gotten vaccinated. The other one is, still hasn't. Yeah, my family means the world to me. And just trying to think of what ways can I put a bubble around them? I told myself if I can keep my immediate family alive, because I lost fa- four family members to COVID. Um, but, I'm so sorry. Yeah, but if I can keep my immediate family alive, then I would feel like it's it's a success. So my grandmother is still here. She's 81 years old. Um, she received her vaccine in January. My um, my mother received hers. My father is still waiting to get his. If I can just get us through um, and my cousins, I mean, all of them are on board. Um, and it's uh, every other day is a, hey, did y'all go out in public? Hey, did you go out in public? Um, <laughs> But just really pumping them full of information as much as I can learn to say, this is how you can keep yourself safe. So there are a lot of people you talked about, you know, more than 500,000 people have died just in America of COVID 19. Mm-hmm. Um, those just span where, like, my grandmother got it and she ended up in the hospital for three weeks. Her sisters got it. My father got it. Everyone's doing fine. But you just said that. Four members of your of your family died from COVID nineteen, and I guess I'm just curious. Like, how do you, how do you as a human, yeah, and not just as a doctor? Like, how do you like sit with like sit with that? Um, you don't. Um, I mean, I, honestly, I haven't processed 2020 yet. I don't think I think many of us haven't. Um. Because when you're, again, when you're treading that water or you're trying to swim to the shore, you don't have time to stop. You just got to yeah. keep going. If, if you stop, what is that going to do? It's not going to get you anywhere um, towards safety. So once I get through this pandemic, um, then I'll be able to process that. But, that. but I wrote early on that in COVID, in this pandemic, you don't die. You just merely cease to exist. Because we didn't have funerals. Hmm. We didn't have funerals. There's no closure in that way. It's, it's almost like it doesn't happen. You know what I mean? It's, um, yeah, it's a lot of people, I don't, I think they lost family. And it's almost like you, you just assume, you know, they're gone, but you, yeah. You haven't seen anyone anyway, right? You know, so um, so it makes it abstract in ways. After this is done, there will be a lot of unpacking that happens. But um, until then, you just have to keep your focus on how do I not get consumed. And and in the problems, and I try to figure out solutions to get us, us collectively to the next step of what life will look like. Yeah. Well, Dr. Hilton, thank you for all of your work that you're doing, and I wish you luck. I wish you lots of luck because you know <laughs> your success is the success of 
of of the country in in many ways. So thank you so much for taking some time to do this. Well, thank you for having me. Y'all have a great one. You too. Adam, thank you so much for taking the time out. You and the whole health care team over at Political, y'all have been kicking ass. So thank you for keeping all of us informed. You guys are doing a great service for all of us. Well, thanks. I really appreciate it. And and, uh, and anytime. All right. That's our show. Our producer is Annie Reese. Our senior producer is Jenny Ament. And our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you like our show, then like it. Leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It helps more people find the show. And recently, Politico launched The Recast, a brand new newsletter that breaks down how race and identity are recasting politics, policy, and power in Washington and here in the U.S. To subscribe, go to politico.com right now and search for Recast. Thanks for listening.